You're listening to the City Lights Podcast. City Lights is a church located in Greenville, South Carolina, devoted to building family, blessing neighbors, and bringing good news to the nations. Thanks for joining us. I invite you to open up to Genesis chapter 14, um, where we're picking up on um, the story of Abram. Abram. And, uh, and Abram's important. Um, Abram is important not because he's a superhero or special, distinct. He doesn't have different DNA. He doesn't have extra ribosomes or something. He's a, he's a man. Uh, and that is the title of this whole series is God, God and man. And Abram is God's man, his chosen man, the one that he chose, not because he's special or perfect or taller or shorter or, or, or better looking or stronger, but because God decided to choose him by grace. He called him out of his home in Ur with no classification or qualification and said, I'll make you ready on the way. And I'm going to call you to a spot that you don't know yet. And I just want you to trust me. The picture of Abram is the picture of grace of God meeting us in our life. He didn't leave the world astray. He loves the world. He loves the world. There's a lot of times maybe misinterpretation or, or certain uh, ways of preaching that, that suggest that God hates the world and that just simply can't be true. Why would he send his son to save something he hates? He loves the world and he wants good for the world that's gone bad. And so we've gone through Genesis basically since August talking about the downhill spiral of sin and what happens when humans chose to rebel against God, the aftermath and fallout of that. Uh, but God was not going to allow that problem of sin to be the final say. He was going to work through, not just upon humanity, but through humanity to redeem his good world gone bad. And, and he's doing that uh, through the process of faith, through the process of grace and faith. And so he meets Abram and he meets you and I by calling us, by speaking to us. Even today, he meets us right where we are and calls us to um, come, come, come after him, to come follow him. It's not to be perfect. He doesn't give him a whole list of things to do. He gives him promises to believe in, but he doesn't give him a whole list of things to do. And he says, if you trust my promises and if you listen and respond to my voice, I will do the work you can't do. I will bring the redemption in your life that you can't bring about by yourself. And so as we see, we're, we're starting to see not only that the, the life timeline of Abram changed, not only his life and circumstance, but Abram's character himself is changing. And the things that are coming out of his mouth and the actions that are coming out of his feet and, and his, his very character is being changed to be more with God and, and like God and for God. And, and so that's what we've been studying about uh, in, these, in these ongoing just looks at the Bible here is how can we see a faith grow from being called with no faith, having no faith, but from, from responding to the word of God and hearing and responding to the word of God be changed to someone that has faith or, or great faith or, or probably the highest um, epitome of faith, which is friendship with God. Um, I am, uh, I am a, a two on the Enneagram. Uh, my, my wife thought that maybe I was a nine. One time we got in a fight and my wife said, you can't be a two, you're the least helpful person that I know. Uh, don't, don't tell her I said that, but... Um, uh, I'm a lover, not a fighter, you know, and that's, that's, my, that's my weakness, and it's all, <laughs> this is my strength, it's my, it's my vice. Um, uh, I need to be careful, you know, I think it's good to be a peacemaker, you don't want to be a peacekeeper, and you don't want to be a pacifist, you know, Jesus is not a pacifist, Jesus is a fighter, and he fights for you and I, and there's, there's warfare going on all around us right now, and we don't even smell the difference in it, because we don't see what God is doing, but God is fighting, and if we're safe, it's because he fought for us, and he has victory in every battle that he, that he takes hold of, and so he's a fighter, and so... Um, and so, and so we need to be careful of the distinction between peacekeeping and peacemaking. You know, peace isn't free. Peace takes a price. And shalom comes from the cross only. That was violence. Violence had to come to Jesus on our behalf that we could have peace, supernatural peace. And so there's a difference between people pleasing and peacemaking. There's a difference between pacifism and peacemaking. And, and God is not a pacifist. He's, he's a fighter. And, and so we've been looking at faith, right? Like how does faith grow? And, and, um, and maybe like, 
in some of the earlier chapters of Abram, you know, we might have liked those chapters, like the one where he like has to go through Egypt and, and not eat bread for a while. There's a famine in the land, and so God puts him on this kind of like fast. And then after that, he goes into this time of waiting. And we talked about that last week when the waiting season hit Abram, and, and that didn't change the life changes that were going on. Like his herds were getting bigger and he was getting older, his wife was getting older and Lot was getting more and more annoying. And that didn't change the fact that even though God wasn't moving his life, life wasn't moving without him. And so he had to make decisions in the waiting season. And so God is, is building faith intentionally by creating a curriculum around Abram so that he is being uh, tested in his faith. Faith can't happen. Can't, it can't grow without testing. Faith, faith happens only through testing. And that, that testing uh, comes through waiting and, and watching. And, and it also comes through um, testing uh, through famine and, and other things and seasons. But it also, also necessarily, faith must come through fighting. And that's the part that I don't like, you know? As the two on the Enneagram, it's like, I'm not a fighter, I'm a lover, not a fighter. I've never seen really a great fight before in my life. I never really saw a fight and thought, that was a good idea. So maybe, I don't know if that's it. I mean, I took karate and they always told me self-defense, but usually when people are fighting, it just looks like a big, like, uh, weird wrestling match or something like that, where nobody's really landing any uh, punches and somebody's hair's getting ripped out or something like that. I've seen quite a few fights in, in, my, in my day, being a high school teacher, but I've never seen, like, a real, like, super street fighter, you know, Ryu, you know, Ken fight. It never, nobody lands anything like that. You know what I'm saying? And so, um, but, 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 but those aren't only, only fights that matter. Like, like there, there are, you know, schoolyard bullies and middle school bullies, but, but bullies are pretty preeminent. If you haven't noticed throughout all stages of life, there's always some guy, you know, at the water cooler, some guy at the locker, some guy in the weight room or whatever, who's just wants to just prove he's better than you or whatever. And, 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 and the problem is, is that um, it's not just about the confrontation of evil. It's also the terms and, and, and the, the process of, of being, um, being ruled by, by fear or being ruled by love um, within our heart. I, I had a, um, I won't mention his name, but I had this boss one time that I worked at at a restaurant. And uh, he was super, super tough, probably mean. I'd probably use the word mean, but he was tough either way. And uh, he ran a clean shop and the restaurant was clean and the DHEC people would like send people to his restaurant to see how awesome it was because it was so clean and he just ran it. He was, a, he was a soldier, he was a general, you know. So he ran it like a type ship and, and everything that person said went and all that kind of stuff. And, and I never really like loved his personality, but it was good money and people always came to the restaurant and so forth. Um, but there's this thing that uh, I shared an equipping environment one time, like last fall, and I, and I always regret it, you know? Like, I don't regret a lot of the fights that I didn't get into as a young kid, but I, I regret not standing up to bullies, and that's for sure. And so um, this guy comes into the restaurant, and uh, they sit him with this one, one waiter, and uh, everybody just starts, like, chirping in the side little waiter area with all the water and laughing, and I was like, you know, what's the deal? And, and so um, somebody made me aware of the fact that the person that just walked through the door that came to the waiter station to go get sat um, had, um, had sexually abused one of the waiters that was on the staff. And everybody knew about it. And I didn't know about it, but apparently that was the deal, that this person was sexually abused. And, uh, and I was just, I mean, a chill. Just, you just like, you, you know, you could feel like the wrongness of the moment and like the alienation, the evil. It's like evil is palpable. Evil is not just something that happened in the medieval times. It's like evil is happening all the time. <laughs> we might be sheltered by it, but it's there. There's supernatural evil, there's physical evil, there's political evil, and it, evil is a thing. And so, so part of the reason why, you know, people that follow Jesus aren't just peacemakers, they're peacekeepers, they're peacemakers, and why pacifism isn't really the, the, um, the fruit of Jesus is because Jesus confronts evil. He can't not confront evil. Like, that would make him not good. And, and, and so anyways, like, I regret it. Like, I, I, I should have said something. I should have stood up. I should, what do you, what, like, where do you get off doing that? Where do you get off seating some, they sat this guy in this guy's station, and they're laughing about this thing. And I sit there at 22, and I'm like, why, why does my faith not make me respond to that? 
Like, what kind of a faith do I have that, you know, you can love people and be good to people and so forth, but you don't have a faith that stands up to enemies and knows how to respond to evil when it stands and and knows how to fear God instead of man? Like, what kind of faith do you have in the first place? So faith has to have fights to it. Like, there's no getting around it. And sometimes I think people that follow Jesus are running, you know, they, they love the love of Jesus, and they love the community of Jesus, and they, they love that Jesus is, is a lover, and they love that Jesus always builds people up. But, you know, sometimes it's an excuse to run away from the fights of the world and the evil of the world and pretend like evil doesn't exist, but it does. And pretend like Jesus ignores evil or it somehow can just kind of, you know, placate people until they change their ways and doesn't confront leaders as though he didn't, or uh, evil, as though he didn't turn tables and confront Pharisees and make most of his life pretty contentious against people, you know, that were doing evil to children and telling people he's going to tie millstones around their neck and so forth. Like Jesus is a fighter. And if we follow Jesus, we're fighters too. So faith necessarily comes with its fair share of fights. So that's the question, like we, as we, can, we consider this first war, like it's the first conflict and it won't be the last. Like evil exists in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. And probably today Jesus would espouse more of a spiritual fight, you know, fighting fights, but on the right ground and the right playing field for the right reasons and purposes and with the right, right weapons. But no, you know, there isn't a change in policy here. If evil exists, then, then Jesus confronts it. That's what justice means. That's what, that's what goodness and righteousness looks like in the context of evil is, is peacemaking, not pacifism. So this is where we pick it up in, in Genesis chapter 14. It's, uh, it's the first kind of kind of mini-war, and, um, and I, I want to read this one passage of Scripture because I think it gives us a, a bit of a vision for what I'm, I'm talking about here as far as the heart of God towards fighting and why fighting builds faith and why fighting is necessary to faith and how faith that doesn't fight doesn't know itself yet. Like, faith has to come to terms with what it does in evil because you could, you could, be, just as, uh, you could be just as held captive by, by idols and the things that you love as you can be held captive by the, by the evils and the enemies that you're afraid of. And Jesus wants us free of both those things. God has to be better than our greatest idol and stronger than our greatest enemy. And we're not free until that's true. So this is what, this is what Deuteronomy says about the nature of evil, the nature of battle, the nature of victory, and the, the why, how, and what of, 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 of confrontation uh, when, when the kingdom of, 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 of heaven confronts the kingdom of darkness. This is what Deuteronomy says, and then we'll apply that, I guess, to Genesis 14. It says this, when you go out to war, and it says when, not if, you know, like when, it's going to happen. And this is, by the way, before any major wars have happened, I guess you could call, you know, the conflict with Pharaoh and the Sabbath and their exodus out of it and the kind of like tearing down of the Egyptian army as a war, but they didn't have any weapons for it. So I don't know how you classify, you know, a human war versus God's. But nonetheless, it says this in Deuteronomy, when you go out to war against your enemies and see horses and chariots and an army larger than your own, so this is the genre of war that he's going to address. Um, basically, it's like we're not surprised in the Bible pages or in, in the pages of our life when um, we face up against odds and adversaries that are greater than us, you know, get in line with the rest of the people that have walked in faith. Because if you're, if you're walking the same way as Jesus, you're going to run into a couple of enemies that are bigger than you. Uh, and so he says, hey, you're going to run into these armies that are bigger than you. And he says, this is your command. You are not going to be afraid of them. This is the nature of who you are now, is your character. Because you fear God more than you fear man, you have nothing to fear when it comes to enemies and adversaries, nor should you be surprised or intimidated. The battle's the Lord's. He's going to fight it for you in the first place. Step one, don't be afraid. He says, for the Lord your God is with you. 
who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. I think there are, you know, eights on the Enneagram that are tough guys or whatever, gals, and they love confrontation. They stir up fights. But this isn't the kind of fight we're talking about. Actually, if you are excited about going into a fight, it might not be the Lord's fight in the first place because fight, fighting in our own strength and our own kind of self-vindication or something like that is, is not exactly what we're talking about here. If we're, in, you know, if we're confronting the enemies of the Lord and we're confronting them on the terms that he's telling us to, if, it, if, if we're doing it the right way and seeing it the right way, we should probably have reason to be fearful. Why did he command us not to be afraid, right? So, so the kind of battles that we are actually fighting, unless we become bullies and villains ourselves, are the kind that we're super scared of. And that's why there's a command that is inherent in this scripture, not to be afraid. Why? Not because I'm tough or because I'm bigger, because I do martial arts or judo or I got a bunch of guns or something like that. It's because big or small, short or tall, I've learned to trust in God. That's the whole curriculum, that's the whole currency here of faith within this fight. So he says, hey, I'm going to be with you. You saw me do it before in Egypt. That's the policy. That is going to be the precedent set now from here on out. You don't need to be afraid of enemies and adversaries because if, they, if you're afraid of them, they rule you. And you cannot be ruled by anyone else. I'm the one that raised you up out of Egypt. And when you draw near to me in battle, the priest shall come forward and speak to the people and shall say to them, Hear, O Israel. And I love that this is a priestly matter. It's not a general, like they didn't say, let's get General Patton out there. It's saying, let's get you know, a priest out. Let's get somebody who knows, who knows the Lord. And that's going to be your victory, your, your connection with Yahweh, not your uh, access to arsenals. Hear Israel today, you are drawing near the battle against your enemies and let not your heart be faint. Do not fear or panic or uh, have dread for the Lord your God who goes with you is for you. And, uh, and if he is for you, then your enemies can't survive against you. He will give you victory. All right, y'all ready? Genesis 14, it says this, a bunch of names. I practiced beforehand not to mess this up. At the time when Amraphel, going good so far, was king of Shinar, Ariok, king of Alassar, Kedorlomer of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goyim. These kings went to war against Bera, king of Sodom, Bersha, king of Gomorrah, uh, Shinab, king of Adma, Shemaber, king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zor. All these latter kings joined forces in the valley of Siddim, that is the Death Sea Valley, Dead Sea Valley. For 12 years, they had been subject to Kedorlomer, but in the 13th year, they rebelled. So uh, it's a multinational war. You might say it's a world war. It's several armies and several kings uh, responding to the power vacuum and struggle within a certain area, ganging up against each other. And the army, ultimately to give you the kind of end before we begin here, uh, is going to be the army of five versus four and the army that has four, I think, defeats the army that has five. I think that's how it goes. Anyways, verse five, it says this, in the 14th year, Ketalomar, and the kings allied with him, went out to defeat the Rephites, the in Ash, Ashtaroth, Karnim, and Zuzites in Ham, and Emites in Shavakiriatham, and the Horites in the hill of the country of Seir, as far as Elperin, near the desert. Then they turned back and went to En-Mishpat, that is Kadesh, and they conquered the whole territory of the Amalekites, and as well as the Amorites who were living in Tamar. So this is kind of like, you know, in the beginning of a movie, they got the bad guy, and the bad guy's really bad. I mean, he's not just a bad guy. He's like a really bad guy, and he's like saying bad words to somebody's grandma or something. You're like, oh man, that guy deserves it. He's going down, and Batman's going to do it, or whatever. And so they're, they're drumming it up, right? So here's this Ketalomar guy, and he's like conquered all this area, and he has all this power, and then it's saying, these guys are going to come fight uh, against him. And so it's like, if he wins, then he's not only bigger than all these guys, but he's also bigger than all these guys. It's kind of drumming up all this stuff, okay? And so, and so what we see here is a picture of, um, I think the Bible is pr- trying to present um, not like specific battles or strategies or, or even specific locations, but just to give us the picture that, that war and violence and turmoil is widespread within the nations. And this is kind of 
standard operating procedures. This is just this is pretty normal and, and, and something to be expected back then, something to be expected before Jesus, something to be expected after Jesus. Jesus himself says that even in the last times there will be war, and, and there are and have been brilliant visions about you know, collective security and United Nations and the League of Nations and these things, but none of them, uh, no peace pact and no alliance has survived uh, up until this point. Peace can't, can't be made based, based on contracts, and I think it's because the Bible is saying that from the dawn of time, as long as there's nations, as long as there's selfishness, as long as there's fear, there will be force and there will be war, and war is unfortunately part of our existence. This is the way that James explains it from his epistle, speaking to uh, people within the church with battles and conflict that happen at the micro level as much as they'd happen at the macro level. He says, look, when you see fighting, you shouldn't be surprised. This is the way that James uh, assesses it. He says, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from the desires that battle within you? You desire, but do not have, and so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. And when you ask, you do not receive because you can ask with wrong motives and may spend what you get on your pleasures. And so what the writer James after Jesus is saying and what the writer here, Moses, probably is saying in Genesis is that war is not the way that God designed things and it's not a, a fruit of the Holy Spirit, but certainly is uh, the, the ultimate kind of expectation and inevitable reality of life outside of the gospel of Jesus Christ. In other, in other words, thinking that war is just the result of racism or war is just the result of politics or money and if we can get the systems the right way and move the power structures around and create balances of power within things and create diplomatic, you know, classes, you know, classrooms. Now we have actual majors that are made in peacemaking, like to study the art of peacemaking and diplomacy. And there's nothing wrong with that. But at the end of the day, the scorecard measures up. And, and at the end of the day, I think the Bible is being pretty clear here that, that war is inevitable so long as Jesus is not king. And, and where Jesus is king, there will be peace, but he's the only one that can bring peace. And so we would do well to not contribute, you know, and, and, and escalate war and escalate balance and escalate violence. But when we see it happen, we shouldn't be surprised that Abram is in this position because we're all in this position. We're all in the middle of conflict. So the question is not if there's a war, it's when there's a war, what will you do about it? Abram is called to be a great nation, a different kind of nation with a different kind of name. And so we should be looking at the Bible. How will, how will Abram respond to this? And what is the response of, of, of the nation of God uh, to evil around them, or maybe even evil, evil within them. Uh, so it goes on. It says, verse 8, it says, The king of Sodom, the king of Amorah, the king of Admah, the king of Zeboim, the king of Bela, that is Zor, marched out and drew battle lines against the valley, in the valley of Siddim, against Ketelomar, the big king, right? So big king is uh, allied with Elam, title king of Goyim, Ephrael king of Shinar, Ariok king of Elassar, four kings against five. So the big, big king against the little kings. Verse 10, now the valley of Siddim was full of tar pits. And that's interesting because that's exactly the same substance that's used uh, to, um, to rain down on Sodom and Gomorrah in, in chapters in the future. But there's a bit of a, a preview, a, a foreshadow of this here in verse 10. It says there's tar pits and the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled and some of the men fell into them and uh, the rest fled into the hills and the four kings seized all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their food and then they went away and they also carry Abram's nephew Lot and his possessions since he was living in, uh, in Sodom. Okay, so if you remember Lot, Lot's Abram's nephew. Lot is a lot of problems. He, Abram has a lot of problems and one of his problems is Lot and Lot has a lot of land and Lot moves over across the, um, across the river um, to go live by himself in the place that would soon become Sodom and Gomorrah and, uh, and likewise as these, as these battles which seems the scripture is being intent on proving is sort of inevitable. It's not if, but when. And when these battles strike up, it's only a matter of time before uh, the people around them get sort of sucked into the skirmishes. And so, so Lot is sucked into this problem by way of relationship, and Abram is sucked into the problem that Lot's been sucked into. And, 
And so, so the picture here, I think, is, is, is of Lot choosing away from the promise of God, choosing away from the blessing, going out on his own terms to go claim land that he felt was a grassy knoll and a place of blessing, a garden of the Lord, a place next to Egypt. And this is kind of the fate that he is in. I think if we read it with some, some, some focus and some clarity, with some critical thinking, I think this is supposed to be a, a picture of, 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 the, of the probabilities of of people apart from God fighting against the enemies of the world, the dark forces, both of politics and spirituality. I don't know if you've ever seen before this movie that's called Legends of the Fall. There's three brothers. One's Brad Pitt, and the other one is some other guy I can't remember, and then there's a young one. Brad Pitt was the middle brother, I remember. And it was all around World War I, and the whole idea is that Brad Pitt's character gets sucked into World War I because the young kid's this big, like, he's just, you know, daring and, and wants to be brave and wants to fight for his country, and he signs up for World War I, and how can his friends go to war, and he's not going to go to war, so he goes to war. And uh, he's in the trenches with his brother, and the brother's just there to look out for him. And again, the brother doesn't really care about politics or whatever in the United States. He just goes to fight the war to protect his brother. So he follows his brother out there. The brother's name is Samuel. And the death scene for Samuel is pretty gruesome. You know, it's a rated R movie or whatever. But I think it gives us a really, really I think, uh, kind of blatant picture of, I think, what's going on here is that the brother Samuel uh, ends up... Um, uh, getting hit with uh, mustard gas, one of the you know chemical warfare agents that came out in the early 1900s for that, and, and so made the warfare really gruesome. And, and then, not only that, but he was blinded by the mustard gas, and then he gets, if you remember the movie, gets torn up and tangled up in this like barbed wire, and then these like German soldiers come in, there's like six of them, and they just gun him down right in front you know, uh, of Brad Pitt, right? And, and, and so I think that is the picture, is the inevitability of war, but also the inevitability of... of, of um, of the helplessness of people in light of this war that goes on. The, inevitably, in, the, the helplessness of people that are not connected to God, that are not connected to the promise of God, it's, it's saying, it's like, well, you don't win some and lose some. It's like, no, every single battle that, that humans try and, and face you know, the serpent with, to face the evil powers, the principalities, to face the kings of this earth, all these things that collect, that war will happen. That war will vacuumize people into it. It will, it will pull our high schoolers and pull our children and pull our wives and our spouses and our family and our friends. It's not when, but it's not if, but when. And when it does, it will dominate and annihilate people. There's no chances, there's no hope of victory without Jesus. There's, there's, there's mustard glass, there's, there's, um, there's entanglement, there's, there's barbed wire, and then at the ultimate end of it, there's machine gun fire. That's it. There's no, there's no survivors. Like it's, it's, not like, it's not like, well, maybe if we get our plans set up or maybe if we organize things the right way or, or use the right weapons, it's like we are, all, we are all just pigs to the slaughter. I mean, not to use harsh language, I suppose, in, in, in Sunday morning, but I think that's what it's saying is that Lot is inevitably going to get sucked in and Lot will inevitably be taken down by this evil. There's no chance. But come to think of it, Abraham doesn't have any chances either. Look what it says in the next verse. Um, it says, verse 13, a man who had escaped and reported this to Abram, the Hebrew. That's the first time that's ever used in the Bible, by the way. Now, Abram was living near the great trees of Mamre, where he was waiting on the Lord. He had patiently decided to wait there instead of escaping to Egypt, the Gerson, or else. That was his place of waiting. And he was waiting for the next word of the Lord. It says, uh, he's at, at Mamre, an Amorite, a brother of Eshcol and, and Aner, all of whom were allied with Abram. They come to Abram, in verse 14, it says, when Abram heard that his relative had been taken captive, he says he calls out 318 trained men born in the household and went in the pursuit as far as Dan. So we count church numbers. I think there's usually like 100 or so people in this room. So you like look around. It's like, imagine if three of us, uh, three of these rooms, like this room and then one more and then one more, we just all like got together in the lobby and then no plans. All right, guys, let's go get some horses. We're going to the Middle East and we're just gonna go and fight everybody over there. I mean, that's essentially what's going on. It's like unsurmountable odds. I think we just breeze through these numbers, but you gotta pause and think about this. It's like, 
This is a Gideon moment. Gideon's moment was like 300 men against like, I think, 100-something thousand people. And these are the kinds of stakes that God is calling us into. So it's not like Abram is any more qualified to win this battle than Lot is. It's just that he has the Lord on his side. And that is, that is the nature. When you read through Deuteronomy you know, 20, uh, there's a famous book called The Art of War by Shang Tsu or something like that, this Chinese book that talks about getting upper ground and knowing your enemy well and all that kind of thing. And, uh, and, and, and Deuteronomy 20, which I started to read earlier, parallels with that. But the way that God fights wars, the terms he fights them with and the math he fights them with and the logistics and, and, the, and the reason that he fights them with is completely different from the Art of War book. Uh, God is not fighting war like, uh, like enemies do. He is not fighting war you know, in the same way or the same manners. He is fighting wars based on his own authority and by his own sovereignty and by his own strength. And so Abram is put into this situation and the reader is meant to read the stakes here because we are, we are, we are not supposed to underestimate the depths and the power and the treachery of evil. But, but worse than that, we should not underestimate the power of Jesus and, and the power and the strength of what it means to have God on your side. And that is the highlight, I think, that, that the scripture is trying to, both in Genesis and in Deuteronomy, and I suppose in other places, to highlight for us is that it's not the guns and it's not the weapons, but ultimately is the Lord. There are people with many more weapons and many more guns that have lost many more battles without the Lord. But as, as they continue and as the Israelites continue, as, 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 as Abram continues and we, as we continue, we need to count the God factor as the most important in all of our struggles and all of our battles. This is what, what C.S. Lewis says about the nature of spiritual evil. He says, um, people make two mistakes, two big mistakes when it comes to thinking about the fact that um, the world is an ugly place and that um, it doesn't respect innocence and it preys on the weak and it tangles people into barbed wire and puts mustard gas in their face. Like, we shouldn't be surprised by that. And he says, we make two mistakes. One is that we underestimate that. He says, there are two equals and opposite, equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. And he's speaking specifically of spiritual unseen warfare. One is to disbelieve their existence. Everything's great, man. And just all you need to do is just laissez-faire. You do you, you do me, I be, you do you stay in your lane and everything's going to be cool. All we have to do is just make everybody happy and then we're going to have peace. He says, there's a fatal error in forgetting that the same kinds of powers and principalities that ruled back then are the same ones that rule today. And we are not living in a, in a, in a laissez-faire, kind of good vibes only era. We live with enemies around us, before us, beside us. Some of us are more aware of that. Some of us are less. Some of us don't want to believe it. You know, some of us think about it too much, which is exactly what he's going to say. He says there's two different errors, and one is to disbelieve the existence of evil, as though there isn't evil. He says the other is to believe and feel excessively and have an unhealthy interest in them, to believe that they're too big. They themselves are equally pleased by both errors. That is, the enemy is equally pleased with both errors of men, either the half that is materialist or magician with the same delight. Another way that I might say that to apply it to this message today is just simply saying you can underestimate or overestimate evil, but the one mistake you can't make it is to underestimate the power of Jesus. That's what this passage is all about. It's not to overcome fears and confront your bullies and not let the next restaurant worker you know, corner you into being afraid of them. It's to recognize the bigness and strength of God. The purpose of the battle is somewhat to confront evil and to win battles, but the most preoccupied concern of God in his heart is whether or not he's won the battle of our mind and of our heart and whether or not we fear God or fear them. And so this is what is at stake. This is what I think Abram is being sucked into by way of his relationship with Lot. Will he trust the enemy or trust God? Will he fear the enemy or will he fear the Lord? And that's what's before us today. Easier said than done. So it says, verse 15, during the night, Abram divided his men, 
to attack them and he routed them. 315 person route against these thousands of people, these kingdoms, pursuing them as far as Hoban and north of Damascus. And he received all the goods. And I love that it says all the goods because God's not a compromiser. He doesn't negotiate with terrorists. He wants it all. He wants all of it. And, uh, and I think that is some of the call in Deuteronomy 20 that we don't compromise with evil and we don't, you know, win the battle of purity only half-heartedly or win the battle of faith half-heartedly or the battle of generosity when I get around to it step-by-step, little-by-little. There's a kind of all-in message here that God is calling us to battles that we are not compromising with and we are not making alliances with or negotiating with, that there is an all-in victory and confidence in God fighting with us and on our behalf. So he says he recovers all the goods and brought back his relative lot and his possessions together with the women and the other people. Um, buddy of mine, some of you guys know him, um, Mike Breen, uh, uh, he wrote this book that actually I'm going through with a guys group in, in, in the mornings. And uh, uh, he tells this great story. Uh, they call him vicars. And uh, he's, I was a vicar. And uh, anyways, that's the way you called priests or pastors or something. I was a vicar in uh, England. Um, but when he tells that story, he talks about when he was younger. Um, Mike's like 6'3", and just, it's like, you feel like you're a different species, you know? It's like, there's, just, there's some people that are just big. Anyways, big bone and tall and commanding and all this kind of stuff. And, uh, and his brother's bigger than him. I remember we were at this uh, 3DM conference one time. It was like this discipleship conference. He was the guy that wrote the book and so forth. And he was talking, and, and this guy walked in. And I, have you ever seen somebody that you hear the James Bond soundtrack behind you? Because either how slick they are or because in this case, he had like a scar down his face. And it was like, are you... Are you like Jaws or something? Like he just looks so menacing and tough. He said, oh, that's my brother or whatever. And uh, he told this story. It was there um, about how in England, I guess they settle things differently. I mean, they probably settle things like this everywhere. But um, there's this bully he talked about that was like stealing everybody's bike. And, uh, and the soldier, the brother, was like out at war. And uh, he would just terrorize, you know. And they, it's, it's like that, you know, laughing at kids and giving people wedgies and stealing their lunch and doing all this awful stuff, which is, you know, I think we've all experienced that before. So he's bullying everybody and terrorizing everybody's neighborhoods. Everybody's scared of this kid. I don't remember what his name was until the brother, brother came home. And he said, it's, I love this moment. And I think I just remember the story because it's like, it's just such a great moment when he like comes to the door and the kid's face, he said, when he was looking at him, had this kind of like, you know, stupid bully face look. But then he saw the guy behind him and his eyes traveled up and the, as his eyes traveled up, like his face like completely changed with this shock, terror and awe. And he was like, if you continue to bully uh, all these kids on this block, when I return, you won't have to answer to them. You'll have to answer to me. He said, that was the end of it. That was the, that was the whole thing. That was the whole story. And so um, it's about, you know, I think, I think the passage is about who we show up with and who we trust and who fights on our behalf and who we believe brings the victory. He sends Abram out with 318 men on purpose, not because he wants Abram to be in a vulnerable spot or to be scared, but because he wants Abram to learn to trust. The same ways he's learning to trust in the famine, the same way he's learning to trust in the waiting, he's learning to trust God in the fighting. And this is how uh, God sends Abram out on purpose. And so this is how, um, this is how the character of, of Abram begins to change. Like Abram's circumstance doesn't only change and the battle's not only won, but what's more important, I think, to God is that Abram's heart is changed. His, the, who he is changes, like the way that he thinks changes. Think about the way that he responded to Pharaoh in Genesis chapter 13 and now how he responds to these kings after he defeats all these people this king of Sodom comes to him and wants to make an alliance. And this is what Abram says to him. Think about the way that Abram is thinking about life and the way he thinks about war and the way that he thinks about famine. It's so completely different that God couldn't have spared, he couldn't have, he, he couldn't have gotten this. Like, like 
the process of God changing Abram to go from no faith to some faith to great faith to friendship with God, like nothing was wasted. It was all for this. This is what God was after. It says, the king of Sodom said to Abram, give me the people and keep the goods for yourself. So the king of Sodom said, you can have the people and let me have the goods and we'll strike up an alliance. And, and God is not for alliances. He's not for negotiation with evil. He is not for um, building your army your way to win God's war your way. He's, he's saying, I want you to fight with me. I want you to fight like me. I want you to fight for me and, and for my purposes and for my cause. And so therefore, this battle is not about you just surviving or dominating or creating some equal balance of power. This battle is about you learning to trust me in the middle of, of conflict, in the middle of fear. And this is what Abram says. Think about this. This is, this is Abram now. He's, he's becoming a new kind of creation. He's different from these other kings now. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, with raised hand, I have sworn an oath to the Lord God most high, creator of heaven and earth, that I will accept nothing belonging to you, not even a thread or a strap from your sandal. This is a dude, if you just think about it, two chapters earlier, just sold his wife for some horses and chariots. This dude just took his wife down there and sold his wife. Sold his wife. He, he, he made a covenant. He made a covenant, well, he presumes a covenant with Yahweh and then ends up making a covenant with his actions with the Pharaoh four verses later in the Bible. And now he's looking at this king of Sodom in which he is outnumbered 10, 20, 30 to one. He's in a precarious situation. Now he's the guy, I mean, you know this when you're the big person on the block, when you have all the money and the power, it's a matter of time before you become the target. He would do well politically to make an alliance here, but this is, his, this is not his MO and he's learned from God, not just to, you know, how to act differently, but who to trust and how to trust and how to, how to move forward in life when conflict comes. Battles will happen, wars will happen, you know, you know, terrorism will be a part of life, but he is learning to put his trust in God and not in weapons and not in warfare. And so he says, I'm not accepting anything from you. I'm not accepting anything from you. And even the thread on a sandal, I'm not taking from you. No one will be able to say, I made Abram rich. Why? Between the lines is because God has made me rich. He is the one that's gonna bless me. He's the one that's gonna protect me and provide for me. At the end of the day, he's my source of provision and protection and promotion. Verse 24, I'll accept nothing but what my men have eaten and the share that belongs to my men who have went with me to, uh, to Aner, uh, Eshkol, and Mamre. Let them have um, their share. All right, so here's where the story gets interesting. A really interesting character pops up just out of nowhere. It seems like it has nothing to do with anything, but I think absolutely has something to do with something. Verse 17, after Abram returned from defeating Ketalomar, the big dog, and the kings allied with him, the king of Sodom came out to meet him in the valley of uh, Shava, that is, the king's valley. Then it says, verse 18, Then Melchizedek, which is just the craziest name. I just kind of wonder if we ever looked in the census if anybody named their kid Melchizedek. I'd shake their hand. That's a very interesting name. Melky. Hey, Melky, pass me the ball. King of Salem, which means righteousness. King of Salem brought out bread and wine. It's kind of like communion that we're going to take today in a minute. It's pretty cool. It says he was a priest of the God Most High, and he blessed Abram. He said, blessed be Abram by God Most High, creator of heaven and earth, and praise be to the God Most High, and deliver your enemies into your hand. That's a pretty interesting verse of scripture. And it's only two verses long. In Hebrews, if you go to the back of the book, there's this um, epistle that, talks about this guy, Melchizedek, the entire chapter, Hebrews chapter 7, says some pretty crazy things about him, compares him to Jesus. Um, some scholars actually potentially think he's a theophany, you know, like that he is the first uh, semblance of Jesus, that he is Jesus 
represented early, a sneak preview, a coming attraction, which I think is hard in some ways to argue, and I tend not to fully believe it, but certainly he knows a lot of stuff. Uh, He's in on a lot of stuff, and uh, the Bible in Hebrews 11 will suggest that um, he represents a lot of stuff. So what is it that Melchizedek is doing here? And what is, why is he popping up out of nowhere after this first victory in this war? And right before the covenant is going to get laid down in Genesis 15. Melchizedek, the king of Salem, the king of righteousness, brought, brought out bread and wine. Like every, every, every altar to this point has been kind of like a, a smoking meat, a fire, an offering. This is a grain all of a sudden. You've got these grains and there's bread and there's wine. And it doesn't seem like Abram's thinking this dude showed up late to the party empty-handed and just decided to go to Publix and get a gift card or something on the way there. Like, this seems to be a legit sacrament. And Abram, it's going to say, is going to tithe 10% of everything he has to this guy. So he brings out this bread and wine. And then the scripture says, in both Genesis and in Hebrews, this guy is a priest of the Most High God. That's pretty crazy. And you really got to think about it. Like, we toss around into the Bible. When you think about all the things that have happened in Enoch and Noah and Abram, like, there's not a lot of people that get it right right now. Like Abram's barely figuring out what, who God even is and how to talk to him. And, oh, I guess I should have one wife, God. I didn't know that. Like he's trying to like get on the tricycle here. And all of a sudden this like kind of black belt ninja shows up out of nowhere. Like he's a priest and he's got bread and wine and it smells like Jesus. It looks like Jesus, right? That's what Hebrews 11 is saying. It's like, it's not an accident. He looks and smells and talks and sounds a lot like Jesus. He is a, a, a prototype at least of Jesus. And he's in on the blessing. He's like, hey, remember all those private conversations that you're kind of wondering if you thought to yourself, is that even real? Like, those were real. And I heard them, and I agree with them. As, as a priest, as your priest, Abram, and Abram's supposed to be the father of nations. He's the patriarch. He's the highest guy on the org chart right now. All of a sudden, here comes this guy. He's higher on the org chart. That's why Abram ties to him. And Melchizedek, he says, blessed be Abram, God most high, creator of heaven and earth. And then he gives, them, gives him the, the, the sermon in a sentence here. God's the one that delivered your enemies into your hand. And you know that, and I know that. So let's break bread together and consecrate this time because we know God just did something crazy. God did something good. God's a builder of faith, and he doesn't just build it through testing and trial, but he builds it through fighting. And it is the fight that God wins on your behalf that will grow your faith. Have you recognized that? Have you made an altar around that? Let me bring this bread and wine to you to do that. Uh, Melchizedek, uh, I don't believe is, is, is Jesus, but I believe he is certainly like Jesus in the sense that he is a royal priest. And I think that the Bible is given a wink and a nod to all the long list of all these other names that we can't pronounce in the beginning of the chapter and talk about the fear and force that the world is governed with next to the kind of ruling that Melchizedek, the royal priest, is bringing. The people in the earlier part of the chapter ruled by first force and, 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 and violence and corruption and alliance, but Melchizedek comes out on his own horse and brings his own bread and wine. These people, they, they rule with military and with, 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 with power and guns and ammunition, and, and Jesus, well, the person that represents and reflects Jesus in the story, is coming out to bring a sacrament of blood, a sacrament of sacrifice. It says one of the reasons why we do think potentially he could be some some image of Jesus or something like that is that it says that he has no heritage, right? He doesn't have a mom or a father kind of thing. And, and potentially that could just mean he is made a priest by faith as opposed to a priest by lineage. But, but that's the deal here is that, that, that this royal priest was the way that Adam and Eve were supposed to be to work and to tend the garden, to be royal priests in the garden. Melchizedek has just jump-started and become the image that Abram is supposed to be. If Abram is supposed to go rule nations, he's going to have to become a royal priest like Melchizedek. Kings are, are there for the slaughter and for the taking and for the building up of empire, but royal priests are there for the people. 
So this kind of a priest, this kind of a king is a different vision, a different image bearer, a different kind of leader that God is presenting to Abraham and showing Abraham the kind of, of person that is going to rule over the earth. That is, that is not ruling like, like Daniel says, the rules like a beast, that's going to rule like a man and is going to lay down life and be a suffering servant and rule from heaven and not from humanity. And, and this kind of royal priest that, that Abram is getting a glimpse of and somehow in his knower, he knows to tithe to him. Somehow he knows that that's what, that's what the Lord looks like. That's what the Lord is going to look like. And that's where it says Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And you know, by the way, we preach through, I want to talk through books of the Bible and we're actually going to have some visiting speakers in the next couple of weeks, which I'm excited about. And I'll just be able to catch my breath and you guys won't be as bored. Um, but, but it's good to preach through the Bible because it'll take you to the topics you need to take and you don't have to throw some big you know, series at it. Abram gave the first tithe. And the tithe is not a tip. That's what we need to learn from this passage, I guess, as just a, um, a, a topical look at it. But, but the tithe is a, a trust. It's a kind of worship. I think sometimes when we think of tithe, you know, we might think of some guy in a Learjet with a suit asking for money so you can get healed or something like that. And that's certainly not what a tithe is. But the tithe is not also a GoFundMe account. Like, oh, the church's lights made to say on, might need to pay my, my due. Like that would be, right? It'd be bad to show up at a party without food and it'd be bad to show up to church without a tithe. And that's my... We may get confused of like how tithes work. Tithes are not to the church or to the budget. Tithes are to God. And it is this message that says, I agree with Melchizedek that I don't win my battles, God does. And I don't feed myself, God does. And I don't protect myself, God does. And so when we give of our tithe, our first and our best, our offering, not only of our money, but our resources, it's saying that I trust in God and not in horses or men or chariots. And that's exactly what the tithe is. And we, when we think about what would distract us from a tithe or pull us from a tithe, I hope it wouldn't be someone in a Learjet, but I hope it also wouldn't be, you know, you know, misinterpreting what the tithe actually is. It's a sacred get to. It's a wonderful opportunity. And he doesn't tithe before the battle. So the battle's won. He tithes after the battle because the battle's won and to give recognition of the one who already gives. And so the battle isn't dependent on the tithe, but the tithe is definitely an apt resolution. It's an apt response to what's happened in, in the last couple of verses of Abram's life. So what's Melchizedek doing? And this is the way that I put it on the outline. Melchizedek is sending a message to Abram, a, a, a preview, a coming attraction, a taste, a glimpse of the future of when a real king will come and not rule with brutal force and strength, not like Ketel Omar. He's going to rule like a man, not like Nebuchadnezzar. He's going to rule from heaven and not with human hands. He's going to rule with strength. He's going to rule with, with bread and wine. Just to say this, the source of every victory doesn't come from guns and ammunition, and it doesn't come from a really healthy prayer life, ultimately every victory is sourced in the blood of Jesus, in that communion table, in that little table. It looks, looks religious, it looks ornate, it looks like something that we do every day and we take advantage of it and we don't necessarily think about it, what it should be thought of, but he's saying that the source comes from, I mean, that's bread and wine to represent it. The source comes from the real blood, the real body of Jesus. All victory, if we've had any victory, comes from Calvary. It comes from the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And it is when we take our eyes off of that fact that we do become vulnerable of different bullies and different fears and different things. And, and so, so, so Melchizedek and, and the real royal priest, which is Jesus, has not come to make us tougher or stronger or more dependent on our weapons, but make us more trusting in the one who holds us that we could, we could face any odd or any odds or any circumstance and know that we would be victorious, not because of our strength or because we listened to Eye of the Tiger enough and ran around the neighborhood and did push-ups, but because we learned to trust in the body and the blood of Jesus. What does the blood of Jesus mean? What does the blood of Jesus mean for our victories today, for our battles today? Because every battle is won and lost in the blood of Jesus. Every battle is won and lost 
in the blood of Jesus, if we trust the blood of Jesus for the atonement of our sins, for our access point back to God, this is what Melchizedek is saying without saying. He's showing without saying. That blood of Jesus gives us access back to God. There's no access. There's no way to meet with him, to talk with him. Like, like Abram is able to talk to God because he has faith, and he has faith in the promise that he hasn't seen yet, but that promise is tied to the blood. It's, it's only accessible because it was purchased. The promise is only accessible because Jesus was crucified, and so we don't have access. And so we don't want to read Abraham and think, oh, I'll just go out in a field and talk to God. Like, we come before God understanding that we have access through faith by Jesus' blood and the grace of Jesus Christ. And we, we, we come into authority and power and our identity and like growing in faith to the degree that we understand that grace comes at a price, at the blood of Jesus. Number two, the blood of Jesus makes Jesus the king of all nations. And so when Jesus died and buried and was resurrected again, he sits on the throne and, and he essentially makes all of the first 25 verses of this chapter a moot point. And the people are kind of scurrying around and trying to make their way and grab as much land as they can. But at the end of the day, all the nations will only be inherited by the meek. And, and they will only be inherited by those who learn to trust in the name of Jesus because Jesus is the king and he is the dispenser of all good things. He is the giver of all good gifts. And so, so the good news of the table today is that the, the bread and the wine, they're speaking a better word to Abram and speaking a better word to us today that we don't have to bow down to the king of Ketalomar or whatever or the king of Sodom and Gomorrah to find victory. We don't take a thread of sandal from anybody else because the victory is only standing in the blood of Jesus Christ. And last but not least, the blood of Jesus is the only thing that can bring peace. And we can move around with our contracts and our diplomacy and our you know, progressive programs and so forth to try and make things better. And there's nothing wrong with that, but we don't, at the end of the day, stake our claim. We know that peace will only come and only be sustained by King Jesus himself by way of his blood. So what is the battle that you're facing and who are you facing it with? The problem and I'll quote a stupid Batman quote, the problem with fighting battles on our own is that we either lose them or we win them and become the same bullies that we fight in the first place. That's the battle. That's, I think Harvey Dent or something says that in The Dark Knight. Like, like we either die as the hero because, and it, because evil's too strong. We die as the hero or we become the same villains that we fight. And when we don't fight with God, we make our own shields and we become militant and we become senile. You know, we, come, we become... Um, we, we become restless and we become angry and angsty and, and we become, you know, um, suspicious of the people that are trying to take our wealth because you have to keep wealth the way that you fight for it. And so he's inviting us, you know, when we fight our battles, like the battles that we fight, whether it's against disease, whether it's against um, relational uh, turmoil within our family, whether it's uh, with ourself, with our own sin nature, whether it's, you know, the fear of, um, of the changing of the times, whether it is, you know, you're, you're be getting gossiped to get about or something like that, if you're being attacked, if you're being, you know, manipulated, like he's saying, like, these are not uncommon because as long as there's selfishness, there's always sin. As long as there's sin, there's always gonna be war and conflict. So we need to face these things. So the question is not, not if, but when. And when you come up against enemies and evil and adversary, don't shrink back and don't bow your chest like you're the one that wins victories, but turn and trust in God. He's not giving us a battle to get tougher with. He's giving us a battle to trust God with and to learn the authority of the blood and the body of Jesus Christ. Um, we're going to take communion this morning. I'm going to invite uh, Sharon to come as she kind of um, sings over our room this morning, kind of prepares the room. And so thank you, Sharon. How about a hand for Sharon as she comes up? She's super sweet. And she picked a, a really beautiful song um, um, for us to kind of meditate on. But, um, but yeah, every, every month we want to do communion. We were going to do it last month, but family meeting got canceled because of uh, the weather thing. Um, but... 
yeah, we, we want to continue to grow in understanding like what this thing is. Like this isn't just something our grandfather or grandmother taught us to do. Um, we, are, we are remembering the table, not of Melchizedek, ultimately of Jesus. And, and as we come down, um, we, are, we are remembering and we are celebrating. And the Bible says we proclaim until his returning that Jesus is king and that our access to him and that our victory in him and our peace in him only come at the cost of the blood of Jesus. And this is what reminds us of that. Lest we go about doing good works and trying to have better thoughts and win strategic victories on our own strength, we come to this place with strengthlessness, with powerlessness so that he can be powerful in us. That's what Melchizedek is trying to tell to Abram. That's what Abram realizes when he ties to Melchizedek. And that's what we're realizing when we come down front here is that victory is not ours, it's only his and in his blood alone that we have victory in Jesus Christ. Do you know that? Do you celebrate that? Do you remember that? Do you tell yourself that? That's what we're doing. And I wanna invite you, if you're not someone that believes that today or doesn't know Jesus Christ, it's just a time probably to wait and observe. But if you believe it today, then I would encourage you to reflect and not take this uh, moment flippantly, but to respond and, and to reflect, like how is God winning my battles? How is God fighting my battles through the blood of Jesus? How, is the, how are the victories that I've had, lest I kind of put my credit in my own strength or my strategy and lose faith in doing so, how would I build my faith that I would see my, see my victory in him and him alone? So that's what I want to invite you to do. We're going to stand in a moment. We're going to come down. We're going to take the elements. And, um, and the people that are handing out communion this morning will remind us that this is representing the body and the blood of Jesus that was paid freely gave us so much inheritance in many more ways than in, in places of battle. And as you take it, I would ask you to reflect. I'd ask you to go back to your seat, find somebody next to you, pray with them, take with them. Um, sometimes we'll take it from the stage, but today we're just going to take it in our groups. And uh, when everyone seems like we have had a chance to take communion this, uh, this morning and remembered and proclaimed the grace and the power of Jesus Christ, I'm going to come up and just close us in prayer. Um, but let me pray for us as we transition to this moment, and then I'll ask you guys to stand and make your way forward. And so, um, Lord Jesus, we just uh, proclaim and remember our victory in you, Jesus, this morning through your blood. And, um, and there is so much um, stuff that, that pulls our eyes and our heart away from that, that makes us fearful or proud or boastful or arrogant, that makes us think that, that we win conflicts or we triumph over things, but... We just tell ourselves, remind this room today that the only victory is in the blood of Jesus and we come back to that place. There's so much power and authority in the blood of Jesus and if you don't know him today, I just, I encourage you to simply just trust him and ask him um, to give you victory in your life over sin and, and, and give you victory uh, for eternal life and for um, your Monday through through Sunday um, through his blood. And so we thank you for your, your blood, for your body, what it represents, what it costs you. And uh, we also celebrate in knowing that it brings great victory for many sons to come to glory and many daughters to come home because of what you did on the cross. And so that's what's on our mind. That's what's on our heart. That's what's on our, on our lips. As we take and we pray together, we, we, we remember and we proclaim the body and blood of Jesus. Amen. Thanks again for joining us. If you have been encouraged or challenged by this message, please give us feedback by leaving a comment on this podcast. For more information on our church, visit us at www.citylights.cc.